0: So whether you're new to development, can't find a great job that fits what you want, or looking for remote work from an area without a strong tech community, I can help. Go to getacoderjob.com and sign up today. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Elixir Mix. This week on our panel, we have Eric Berry. Hey. Mark Erickson. Hey, friends. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week, we have a special guest, and that is Andrew Summers. Andrew, do you want to say Hi. Hi. You want to introduce yourself, let people know who you are, why you're world famous, all that stuff?
1: Yeah, uh, my name is Andrew Summers. Uh, I live in Chicago. Um, currently doing Elixir development at a company called Albert. Uh, we do education technology software. Um, but why I'm here today is that I wrote the Elixir Pretty Printer to translate uh, dialyzer errors into something a little bit more legible than we were previously getting before.
0: Nice. So uh, I actually haven't used Dialyxer. Is it just pretty printing or is there more to it than that? So effectively what
1: happened, so just a little bit of backstory, I guess. Dialyzer was written, uh, I don't know, maybe a decade and a half, two decades ago as a way to bolt on type system to already existing Erlang code that, that was already you know in production, it had already been on machines for like 10, 15 years before you know any of these, any of this tooling had been written. Um, so they came up with this this thing called success typing as a way to to kind of formalize the description of that type system. And more or less how that works is that if the type system can't come across an execution path in your code that says that hey this is going to fail like a uh, you have a function that says that it takes in a boolean and is going to return a string and you pass it in like a number or something like that according to the rules that dialyzer has it might yell at you about that um but if it can't provably tell you that and it can't definitively say this is going to fail it errs on the side of caution and says oh that might not be an error and so that they called that success typing and they came up with this tool in the erlang ecosystem to provide developers the ability to use that on their code base called Dialyzer. And then Elixir is the Elixir, or one of the Elixir wrappers around Dialyzer. Um, so that's kind of the, the backstory of, of all the tooling. But because we had this, this bolt-on type system that was bolted onto a language that was already in production and then we are Elixir that are bolting ourselves onto Erlang, and you know, as as wonderful as that that whole symbiosis is, and and has as elegant as it might happen to be at the end of the day, um, there still is a little bit of impotence mismatch in some of the tooling, and so in particular, the error messages that w- when you were to just wrap dialyzer naively and not really do anything to the output, some of the error messages that would come out would just have these very Erlangified terms in there, just long strings of garbage that were really unintelligible to read with no indentation, no formatting, just nothing. It was was very, very difficult to read. It was kind of like opening a giant XML file that just had no indentation whatsoever and and trying to figure out what was going on. Yeah, you can probably do it, but it's going to be way more effort than anybody should have to spend on that.
2: Gotcha. So I think one thing that's helpful uh, in kind of framing the discussion is... So you've already kind of talked about like what Dialyzer is and yeah, we have these ideas of types that have kind of been added after the fact, you know, it's not a a strong typed compile time checked language. So I think one thing that's relevant and helpful for people to understand is that, you know, it is a static code analysis. So it is. And so in Elixir, right, we're writing these spec statements and a lot of people are using these spec statements if for nothing else than just for their documentation to say i expect this type and this type is coming out but it's dialyzer actually looks at those types and says and it looks at the code and it says well your spec says you're returning this like this struct but i can tell from the other things that are going on you're also returning nil and that's not that's no bueno and so that that's that's really what it's doing for us right and it's helping us to uh, see that what we are declaring our code to do does not match what it is actually doing is that is that how you 'd classify that andrew yeah that 's perfect that that 's yep. absolutely what 's going on and then to to kind of go a
1: little bit further past what you were saying say you have a library that is just using dialyzer as some means of documentation and you know on their function they're saying that it returns a, an integer and a boolean but it actually returns a string when you go and act, when you go and implement that library into your code base and you need to interface with those function calls if their type specs are lying sometimes you have to do some really awful things on your end or submit some upstream pull requests to fix that, just so that you can get your own code to compile. So that the more people that are not just using it as a means of
2: exclusively just documentation, the better, I think. Yeah, I totally agree. And that that is one thing that uh, Josh, who unfortunately can't be with us um, at this episode, he uses Dialyzer and Dialixer. And yes, he's uh, if I'm speaking for him, he's had to you know, create those pull requests for other libraries just to fix their code so that, that it, it actually returns what they say they're returning. But yes. Yeah, so, so, how, yeah. so with Dialyxer, uh, how do we go about saying, you know, okay, this library, they're, they're kind of, they have a, they're out of date. Their code has changed and their spec doesn't match. If I do want mine to still pass and, I, and I'm not going to actually worry about pull requests or anything, what can I do to help clean up my side?
1: So on your side, you're going to have a warning that is being emitted somewhere. The question really comes down to containing that warning. So, if you're calling a function that's very pervasive throughout your code—that pretty much every single function in your application is calling—you're going to have a harder time kind of localizing that around. But if you can, if you can contain that call site to to a specific location, you might be able to just trick your code base with with some sort of uh, like if if you wrap the failing call. And then you ignore the warning in your own call or in your own code that is calling that function, and then all of the calls that were previously calling the the, the failing call are then calling your function. You can you can trick it sometimes to to let it not complain um, as it once was. Um, but really, the best thing is to obviously uh, push upstream pull requests. Uh, but you know. We don't always have time for that, unfortunately. Uh, but opening issues and just making people aware that there is an issue is, is just a quick thing. Even if you don't have time to fix it yourself, some people have more free time than others, and they can just jump
2: in and fix it. Yeah, and so you're saying then I can localize it to one function call in my in my code that I can control. I like that idea. You know, that can kind of funnel all the calls to that other one. I, if nothing else, I'm just wrapping it, but declaring the proper spec on it. Yeah, correct. And then then so there is a like with your library you provide the ability to have a, a dialyzer ignore file that i could specify in my project right? that's correct and so that functionality actually used to exist before it would
1: just only work with the full output of the dialyzer output before so if i had you know five different errors what what i would have to do is i would have to enumerate the exact line of all five of those Errors and put them into a file and say, "Hey, ignore, ignore these five errors." And so, if you moved one of those lines or you added something to one of those files, and, and the line number changed, or you know, just anything around the proximity of that changed, it, it was just very fragile to, to maintain. So we added the ability to point to file numbers and line numbers and actually like warning types. So you can ignore, you know, say you have some file foo.x and you want to ignore all the the unknown type warnings in foo.x. We we provide the primitive to be able to do that. Or you could say, I want to ignore all the unknown type warnings from foo.x on line 73, for example. And just you know, different different files and different applications have different needs for for doing those sorts of ignoring. Like with the example that you brought up, you might want to like ignore a whole class of errors in your in your wrapper class if you have a really malformed library that just isn't behaving with your type specs. But not every project is going to need that, so we don't want to necessarily prescribe anything. Ah, uh, sure.
0: Well, cool. Yeah, I'm afraid I haven't really uh, used dialyzer, dialyxir. I'm I'm still just diving into the elixir ecosystem what what's the best way to get started i mean do you just put it in your dependencies and mix steps get and off you go or yeah there uh that
1: that's pretty much what you're going to be doing at the at the forefront there is a little bit of uh of, of configuration options that there there there's a few configuration options that we provide for just doing various things that will make sense only once you dip into into actually using it but starting from there then you can just just run it on your on your application calling mixed dializer and then just kind of just start looking at looking at the output and kind of see see kind of how it how it it thinks about some of these errors because when you read it some of them make sense and some of them don't make sense and so say for example it gives you it gives you a, a, an error. Back that's like unknown type on this line, and you're like, I don't know what that means. We also provide a different flag that you can pass. You can do mixed dialyzer explain, and you can give it a warning type, and it'll tell you information about that class of warning. So it tries to kind of be a teaching tool to, to teach you what's going on as you come across the specific errors. And then when it, you know, when you, when you get an individual error, it spits out, it tells you all the things that you would need to do in order to, to actually interface with that. That option.
0: Gotcha. So Andrew, why would people not want to use this? Give me some some cons to using your library.
1: Um, so I think most of the cons have to do more with CI than anything. One of the things that happens when you're when you're building or when you're working with dialyzer in any capacity whatsoever is that your dependencies don't need to have their type analysis run on them every single time you run run your code. And so Dialyzer, being a well-engineered tool, decided that they could cache those results in some capacity. And so they came up with this notion called the persistent lookup table, which is exactly what what I was describing, where it just caches the the type analysis of of all of your libraries. And so when you start getting into how do I manage this in CI? Like say you have a hundred developers that are all pushing to an individual branch and, and, you're, and, and you want to run Dialyzer every time somebody pushes code. Well, then you have to start doing some clever things in order to get around the fact that this PLT file, you either need to rebuild it every single time or you need to cache it. And then when you cache it there, you run into some some weird issues because it's like it's the triplet of your mix.lock file and your Erlang file or your Erlang version and your Elixir version is is kind of what constitutes the the, the base analysis of that. So building that up in general is kind of a pain. And then once, it, say you bump your Elixir version and you need to rebuild the whole thing from scratch, that takes a while. That can take like 15, 15 20 minutes, 30 minutes. Um, and coming up with good caching strategies around the PLT is... is Not written about as well as it probably should be.
2: Yeah. So Andrew, I think people there's a lot of people who are coming to Elixir new, right? And it's a great time in the community. It's like it's just kind of growing. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on like how would you sell somebody on the reason why why you should use Dialyzer or Dialixer? You know, how what does that help you uh, with your own code? Why why would I want to invest the time to learn this tool for my project?
1: Absolutely. One of the things that you, you mentioned towards the beginning is that a lot of people do use Dialyzer strictly as a means of documentation. And I find being able to look at a type spec and it's just one extra piece of information in the documentation that could be conveyed to the reader about what the code is intended to be doing. And, you know, that might not always be what the code is doing, but it's, it's what the, the author of the code intended at the time that they wrote it. And so, so any extra information that you, you can pass down uh, from the original author is, is great. So the documentation aspect is, is obviously the biggest thing. But, but to me, having, having the machine be able to check that Whenever you push code and whenever you whenever, whenever you make a change, being able to just run, you know it might it's an imperfect check, like we were saying where, where if, if unless it can prove that you did something wrong, um, it's not going to yell at you. But in the off chance that it can prove that you did something wrong, I, I would like to have that extra flag just for, for my own ease of mind when I'm deploying to production. And it just seems like such a low barrier of entry to just write a little bit more documentation to myself, to where like I, we can get such grand benefits from two completely disparate areas of the system that are interacting in weird ways that you didn't imagine because one of them was written eight months ago. Just like all that, there's entire classes of problems that, that can just be eliminated by the tooling telling you that you did something wrong. Um and it's the same reason that we write unit tests and not just rely on QA to verify bug reports.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree. And I, I think so I think of that person, that, that new developer to Elixir, they're they're come and I'm right here. <laughs> All right, Chuck, yes. So you're, <laughs> you're, you're, you're learning Elixir, right? I am. And you're the the main focus that you have at the time is like I just need to make this work, right? I'm just trying to make the code do what I'm trying to say, mm-hmm. right? So at that point, I think it it's okay to say I'm not going to worry about writing specs, uh, type spec information on my code because I don't even know what my code is how to how to write the code yet, right? So like I think that's okay. I just want to let people know that's okay if you're not doing type specs while you're learning Elixir. Um, so then. Then you do you're like you, you become comfortable with elixir you've got an existing project, and now you're like, "All right, I'd like to start running dialyzer on it and that becomes like unfortunately it's like now you have an existing code base with no type specs so that's not as cool, but you know it, that's why it's beneficial to do like little uh, I don't know learning projects uh, but I did have a, a tip I wanted to share for people who are just learning and and they're like starting to add Type specs to an existing project. So, like one of the things I did, I came uh, my current job. I come into an existing project, and I'm writing a subsystem, like a, a new chunk of code. It's like a series of modules, and so I'm going to start writing the type specs. And just on my modules, so that as my, all of my modules interact with each other, I'm writing the type specs, and then I can run dialyxer and I can just, for me, I just grep the output to say. To the file path of where my code is, and I can say within my own code, just find stuff where I'm not consistent, you know. And I think that's because, like, you know, when you run it the first time, Andrew, right? Like on a new project, you get like pages of output, right? Absolutely, it's 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 very intimidating and. Daunting output, especially because it's blood red too, and you're just like, ah,
1: my tool just wants me to not use this.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So like I don't know. Do you have any tips like that you would give that like that like like when you're trying to bring it into an existing larger project?
1: Yeah. Um, I would I would definitely say try and isolate portions portions of your code base if you can. Um, you know, you can you the way that the way that Erlang and Elixir The the primitives that we have with being able to pull things out to umbrella applications Mm -hmm. and an umbrella sub application effectively being the same thing as uh, a standalone application. Um, if you know, not prescribing that everybody uses umbrella applications, but, but if, if you find yourself in, in an application that has that, that, set up um, it might make sense to just kind of carve something away and just and just try hacking on some of the type specs and just to see what you can get working and see if you can get that that subsystem completely passing um, and there there is definitely always going to be a kernel of your application that You know what it's doing like you wrote you wrote that subsystem, you know, like the back of your hand and you you can you can just add a little bit just add a little bit of documentation. And the more that you can help Dialyzer, the the more information that it can the the more yeah, the more information that it has that that it can throw into its analysis to be able to help you on some other stuff that you you might not know as well or might it might have some type errors. Built into the middle, you're you're really just trying to to narrow down the amount, like the fog of war. You're trying to reduce the fog of war in your yes. in your application uh, to just to to be as small as possible. Um, so any any side that you can poke that from is is just going to be good. Um and. Sometimes you have to go back and fix some type specs. That's OK. Yeah. Um, it, it's, not, it's not wrong to do that. You know just write it, write it based off of what you know best about that, that function, and it'll probably be a little bit closer to write than what was there before, and then you can always go back and fix
2: it later. Yeah, I do like the idea of the umbrella, because a uh, previous job I, I like working with umbrellas, right? That, that's my preference uh, to have a, like a Phoenix app broken out into an umbrella. I'm comfortable with that, right? So I have my sub apps and they are more microservice oriented. You know, like they're very single focus, uh, smaller size. And, and then, yeah, then like starting with Dialyzer just on that project, it's much easier to just like isolate it. And it's like, okay, I have this app within the umbrella. I can just run it on that. So not only does it take less time because it's, you know, it's smaller code that I'm running it on. But like, yeah, the output is much smaller, and it's very contained. So I've had good success with that. So plus one. So now, one of the recent features that you added that we wanted to talk about was how the, the language, like you would mentioned before, like the, the code that it reports that Dialyzer reports by default is in an Erlang term kind of expression. That's correct. And so that's not familiar to most Elixir developers. So, especially when you're new to the language, right? Um, so, now you mentioned that in order to start to, to, to turn this into a friendly Elixir thing, you had to kind of learn about some other uh, built in tooling that's in the Erlang ecosystem like Lex and Yek. You want to talk about how you got in, into this path and how that, how that went? Yeah.
1: So whenever there was complicated dialyzer output, I was always the guy at work that people would go, hey, Andrew, what, what is this doing? I, I don't understand what this is saying. And so I started to develop, to develop a couple of heuristics of the stuff that I would do. I would take the output. I would try and just put some line breaks in there where... I could reasonably do so. Um, and then if, if something like just indent some things every now and then, and as I started to do that more and more, I started to notice some patterns in the output, um, and, and things were predictable in some capacity. And so I kind of knew what it would, what it would complain about and how it would, how it would format things. And I, I started to notice some of the it has some weird idiosyncrasies that we can cover in a little bit, um, but I started to notice some of those, those output idiosyncrasies, um, and said, okay, what would I do if I were trying to write an automated tool to do this task that I'm doing manually right now? And did a little bit of research and found out that there are two tools that are built into a, uh, I, I don't know if it's an Erlang compiler pass or an Elixir compiler pass, but one of our toolings uh, has it as a compiler pass. And so it is these two tools called Leaks and Yak, L-E-E-X and Y-E-C-C. And they are just a parser and a lexer and a parser from like a compilers course or, or anything of that nature. And how it works is that if you have these two files in your, uh, in your source directory, um, an XRL and a YRL file for the uh, leaks in the uh, YEC file, it will spit out an Erlang module that you can call to do the lexing and the parsing based off of the rules that you put in your zero
0: and euro files. Deploy more, pay less with DigitalOcean, the simplest all-in-one cloud computing platform for developers. Scale and run cloud applications faster and more efficiently with effortless administration tools to robust compute flexible configurations, networking services, real-time alerts, and rapid provisioning while enjoying industry-leading price-to-performance with a flat pricing structure across all global data center regions at any usage volume. Spend more time building better web apps and less time worrying about managing infrastructure with DigitalOcean. Build your next app on DigitalOcean. Get started with a free $100 credit
2: at do.co slash elixir. Yeah, and these tools... I mean, I was really impressed when I learned that these were already built in to the ecosystem, right into the Erlang runtime. And like it's Elixir itself is written to say to define the Elixir language using these tools. And that is super cool. You know, so I, I think it's cool that you, you're able to kind of, kind of start digging into that.
1: Yeah, that was definitely a lot, a lot of fun. It um, it, it was, it it definitely brought me back to some some of my courses in school, and I was like, oh, I didn't actually have to use any of these lexing and parsing skills to the to the point that I'm using them right now in real life. Um, so I thought that that was kind of funny, but it it is exactly just a normal lexer a normal parser. They don't really do too much that's funky uh, under the hood. Um, they were they were pretty well contain tools aside from not having some some super verbose wording output but i just found out that that was a missing flag so that was an error on my part
2: (laughs) nice and i i understand that you saw like part of your motivation i guess for um, working on this is you saw a github issue by jose yeah jose
1: i guess this uh when would this have been probably been about a year ago at this point, We opened an issue on the Dialixer output that was effectively just saying, Hey guys, um, I know that this is a limitation of the source material effectively, but the error output here just, just isn't great. So I don't quite know like, like what we're going to do to solve that, but this is, this is clearly an issue that needs to get better for, for such a, a Piece of tooling that should be a, a lot more prominent in the ecosystem than it is, um, and you're just like, "We we just got to do better." I, I can provide some guidance and do you know whatever whatever needs to be done on my end, uh, but I don't have time to work on this right now. Um, and so that that was about when I was starting to formalize some of my thoughts of, "Huh, how could I do this autom- automatically?" Um, and the world
2: just kind of uh, collided from there. Nice. So were you able the- to? Get any? uh, Did you have any questions for Jose that you ended up getting help with? Not
1: specifically. I found some issues in various projects that the fixing some type specs that were broken uh, through through the course of fixing some of the issues. But it was most of the interaction that we had when we were when we were doing this project was actually with the community. The the community was invaluable in, in solving this problem. There is no. Way that I could have produced enough of a corpus of data to run through this to to just give me enough bad output when I was doing dumb things in my lexer and parser to be able to just poke all the weird corners without crowdsourcing it to the community, and that wound up being just the most valuable thing that that happened from this. I think
2: that's great. And uh, so, like you'd mentioned that that you've added the feature of the explain. Right to the uh, dial Elixir. And so I know there's a, a, a library that's pretty common in the Elixir community called Credo. And it is a, uh, a code analysis, a static code analysis tool, but it's really around, not around types or anything like that, but it's around style and patterns of, of, like, of, of code, just like the way you're writing your code. But it does have an explain feature of like why it's telling you you should be doing something differently. So I love the explain idea. So, how were you able to? Um, I don't know. You said you kind of gen- developed these heuristics that just like in in matching and just kind of seeing this elect- these Erlang messages. How did you like? I don't know. How do you develop those explained things? Like, how, where does that come in? How do you do that? Sure. There, I guess
1: there is a, a step that I kind of skipped in the middle there, but uh, between when I was just kind of doing it in my head and just bashing it out on my keyboard. And when when the tool was actually written, I forget who linked it. I want to say Jose linked it, but he linked to another project that is an Erlang wrapper around around Dialyzer. I believe it was the Rebar Library. And they have a similar thing. So even within Erlang, they they don't even have great source material within these areas. And sometimes they want to recast them themselves. And so he linked to a an Erlang module that was more or less just matching on all of the dialyzer output and then just kind of recasting those errors. It's just a different string. And so I actually started from there. And then that was, that was kind of just the base baseline that, that was the base area that I started with. And from there, then kind of, just started enumerating the rest of the errors because there were some missing ones from there. And then just splitting that out into modules and just trying to make, make a code base out of it and make, make, make something that I could actually hack on and then reasonably make better
0: in an organized fashion. So do you have things you're working on adding to Dialyxer?
1: So right now we are. Trying to get the error messages uh, good enough for 1.0. Um, the 1.0 has definitely been a long time coming, and so we're we're trying to do some auditing. Um, and there's some remaining errors as people are are starting to use the, the newer versions of the library a little bit more. So you know we're we're just trying to close up some of the the residual issues and um, just just make the error messages be good and be be something that c- the community would want to work with. Additionally, besides that, the, so the Lexer and parsing tools are of Erlang output is useful independent of just Dialixir. There are other dialyzer wrappers that need that kind of tooling as well. So Comcast has a dialyzer wrapper. Um, and then one of the Google Summer of Code projects is was a was an Elm style dialyzer error wrapper type thing. And so that would be able to use the Erlex library, as I've called it, to do the, the lexing and parsing just as a, as a base primitive. And so I think the next thing, all that to say that the next thing that I think is really going to come into the ecosystem is, is now that we have some some facilities for creating better error messages, and we can control them within Urla- within Elixir libraries ourselves, then I think the the, the next thing is really just making the error messages just as good as we want them in the community now that now that we have those hooks.
0: Now, when you say we, how many people are contributing to this? We've gotten contributions from
1: several different people. It's me and Jeremy Hoffman are the two lead maintainers of Dialixir. But when I said we in, in that context, I meant we just the Elixir ecosystem. Does anybody, anybody using anybody who's using a dialyzer. Derived library that comes across an error messages an error message that just isn't clear that should be considered a bug. I think we're we're about at that point where where we should be considering things like that uh, unacceptable within within the ecosystem and just if you see
2: something say something type thing. <laughs> That's exciting. So I know within the Elixir community there's been a an effort. Uh, well, it's actually, not just the, the Beam community. Like there's multiple. There's Erlang and Elixir and another one that I can't remember the name of at the moment, but that uh, they're languages that run on the Erlang Beam. And I know there's been efforts like with Jose, he talked about it at ElixirConf 2018 uh, to actually create some of these uh, more standardized, um, I don't know, structures underneath that these different languages can depend on. Do you know if there's anything um, like that, that that would help you in your tooling for the dialyzer outputs?
1: That's a good question. I think, I mentioned some idiosyncrasies earlier with, with some of the parsing. Some, some of the things that happen what at the dialyzer level is that stuff just gets dropped. And so say for example, I have a struct with like 50 fields in it, not that people should have a struct with 50 fields in it. Um, sometimes dialyzer will only tell you about four of them. and. That's not always helpful. And then it'll say, and then like and then it'll just do comma and then underscore that arrow underscore. And I, I don't know what to do with that. So if the tooling had the ability to not do that and to just give give me all the information that it once had at some point, that would be really nice. Cause then then from there, what we could actually do is start doing more direct diffs and say we have this thing on the left that we we fully know what it looks like. And we have this thing on the right that we fully know what it looks like. And we, we can actually convert them to Elixir and compare them. Or convert them to an Elixir, break them out to their uh, to their ASTs and then compare them. Or, or do any number of things that that we would want to do at that level. But only having partial sources doesn't really give us the the ability to do that. And so I'm not sure if that would necessarily be something that that would fall out of the the efforts that That you were just referring to, but having a little bit of tighter symbiosis symbiosis to that area of the actual dialyzer code itself Mm -hmm. uh, would would go a long way to making this nicer.
2: Yeah. So I just want to mention you mentioned AST, and I just want to mention for our audience uh, that's abstract syntax trees, right? And uh, so are you able to take like uh, an Elixir AS or just a Bean AST and say, hey, give me that? rendered as elixir or erlang like does it go that backwards that way so
1: that's not quite what i'm doing so so (laughs) i guess i should actually say how this tool this tool works because we kind of just talked about some of the the various parts and didn't really say how, how it all fits together. So when I run Dialyzer, it will go and it will run the static analysis on, on my um, application dependencies and it'll also run build up the PLT and then once it has a PLT, it'll then say, okay, with this PLT and your application, I'm going to now run my static analysis on your code base and then I'm going to spit out a bunch of errors. So then what my tool does is it intercepts at that point and it says, okay, Lex and parse the, this error output that we're, we're getting from from Dialyzer itself and then convert that into Elixir. And so it's, it's not doing it, it's, it's doing it kind of naively and with, without context of your application. Um, and it's, it's, it's largely just following uh, just some pretty printing rules that it knows how to do. Like when, when it, When it recognizes that it's coming across a struct, it knows how to kind of break that apart and then spit out the Elixir equivalent of that on the other side. But once we have actual native Elixir, you can call things like the functions on the code module and the other sorts of the metaprogramming modules within Elixir and, and start doing nicer things. I haven't really experimented with much of that myself other than calling format for the niceties of of the, the output, but there's nothing that to me should prohibit tooling like that from being written in the future.
0: Very cool. So if people want to contribute to Dialyxir, what's the best way to get involved that way?
1: Yeah. So like I was saying, so there, there are a couple of uh, competing wrappers at this point. Dialixer is probably the most popular one. So if you're interested in contributing stuff around error messages, that would probably be the, the best place to look. If, if you you know have a, a nice editor's hand and you want to help us make our error messages just be better, that would definitely be a good place for that. Um, if you're a little bit further into like the compiler parser lexer land I want to play with that a little bit the erlex library is where all of that logic is going to be contained and then there the other competing projects are the mix dialyzer project which is the Google summer of Code project I believe that's just mix dash dialyzer and then the Comcast one is called Dialyze X I think that that erlax is definitely a, a good baseline that can be plugged into any of them at this point so if you find yourself bored and want to want to work that into one of these tools i'm I'm sure those library authors would be eternally grateful and how
2: do you spell erlex
1: e-r-l-e-x cool yeah i uh, i kind of wanted to just make it seem like it's going from erlang to elixir and that seemed like a like a fun name to to convey that all right i
2: dropped a link to that in the show notes cool
0: yep so what have you learned working on a library like this? So I learned a
1: lot about the construction of Elixir and just the way, the way that Elixir spits out the code that it needs for itself within the context of the primitives that are provided by Erlang. And so one thing in particular that, that is becomes very apparent very quickly when, when you're working with some of the AST output from Dialyzer is that Erlang has a property called uh, single static assignment, which more or less says that if I say X is five and then I say X is six, that's a compiler error because you just told me that X is five. And so how, and so, so Erlang has that property. And so if if you were, if you were to write an Erlang module, you could not rebind your variables is, is the consequence of that. In Elixir, we can rebind freely. And so how under the hood they get around that is that every variable is given a prefix of V. And so if uh, going back to our previous example, we, instead of having X, we would get capital VX colon colon one and VX colon colon two. So that they actually have two different names under the hood to represent the, the different registers where they're, where they're going to be shoving that memory so I thought that, that was a fascinating thing to, to kind of just realize just going through, going through the output of, of the tooling and kind of just learning how how that, that was all, how that all fit together under the hood. I thought that was kind of fun.
2: I know uh, that principle that you can rebind a variable in Elixir was a big point of contention for the Erlang community. They're like, no, that's not right. You, functional languages can't do that. <laughs> uh, but it's also it's like, well, if you're coming from JavaScript or j- anything like Java, Ruby, it's like you're accustomed to being able to do that, so
1: I like having the ability to do it. I wish I could turn off the ability to use it and say like this this area of my code base is is strict like this is a strictly static assignment area. Um, and then do that. That would be kind of nice because most of the time I don't actually want it. It's, it's very, it's very infrequent that I do want it. And when I do want it, I really do need it. And I, I, I don't, doing it the other way, it just, it feels very awkward when, when, when it is the right thing to do. Um, but most of the time you can just get into trouble with it. So I, I would like to, to have a little bit of a stricter flag around that. But I think that that ship has long sailed and yeah, that's not even worth thinking
2: about. Nope. But, yeah, it's, a, it's just kind of a, I don't know, fun little history view of what's kind of where Elixir came from. Yep. So I did also want to point people to a resource. Uh, it's the Elixir type spec docs. Um, Those have,
1: were a wonderful source of information. I learned so much stuff from that. Um, I know. I, I just stole all of the output from it. I was like, Ooh, this is a concept I didn't know existed at all in this language. Let me codify this somehow. I don't, I don't quite know how I'm going to make the code do this yet. But I, I know that it's possible because this document tells me so.
2: Yeah. And it, it is cool just because like, as you start writing type specs, you're like, "How I don't even know what my options are, right? Because like, string is a special thing in Elixir. doesn't exist as a, a native type in Erlang. So we have a, a a you know module like capital S string dot T when we're talking about type specs, but everything else is uh like lowercase boolean, lowercase integer, you know. So it's so this doc uh the Elixir type specs doc is what I just turn to all the time when I'm trying to figure out how to express a, a type spec, especially when I'm saying oh well this function returns an anonymous function, and you know being able to describe that absolutely. it's a
1: It's a very wonderful, uh, wonderful document. But I think w- one of the one of the other things that i I, I forgot to mention that that I c- came to the realization of as I was doing this is that we really do have a pretty simple language. There are some some weird kind of idiosyncrasies that that it's got but there are not a lot of constructs under the hood. There's really only a few basic types and there's really only a few data structures that you can shove things into. And so the Lexing and parsing rules could have been much, much, much more complicated. Mm-hmm. As I was starting to go down that path, I was worried that it was gonna blow up in complexity, but that never seemed to happen because the, just the, the number of base primitives that you have is extraordinarily small. So I was, I was very thankful for that.
2: Yeah, I'm glad you made that point because that is a uh, a unique thing with Elixir. Um, just in Erlang, you know, it, that my base number of types is pretty tight. It's a pretty tight, small list. You know, I've got atoms, integers, structs, like structs we use for everything. And functions, like functions are first class everything. <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's a really small list. And what I think is, I don't know how that becomes a powerful asset is when you're dealing with like a distributed code, I can say, well, I have a struct over here, and I'm going to talk to this node on this other machine, but it's running a different set of code. And I can send this struct over to it. And it's like, I don't know what that struct is, but it falls back to a map. And then it's able to still deal with it as a map, you know, even without having that explicit type declar- declared and shared between these two libraries. So it's just things like that. It's like, wow, this is really elegant. You know that it kind of has this way of just working really well for distributed. So I don't know. I, it's yeah, yeah. It's one of those things I love about the language. It's just how really s- simple it is.
1: Lists take that to an even crazier degree. So if you, if you go back to you know like a common Lisp or, or a scheme, I don't know if scheme added different syntax for for non-list data structures, but uh, some of the early lists. You just had parentheses and then, you know, that, that was what you had. And so if you're sending something over the wire, well, okay, I'm getting some parentheses. And so on the other side, it's, I got some parentheses, but you can do some really powerful things with that. Some of the, the AI systems that people developed in the eighties were just leaps ahead of things that you could do with C and Fortran and just any of those, any of those equivalent languages at the time because they had that metaprogramming aspect. I think that, that is really what the simplicity buys you, I think, like that plus the metaprogramming allows you to produce some really, really generic constructs that don't have that many moving parts like if you look at the ecto abstract syntax tree it's not that complicated but it allows you to describe such a, such a powerful a powerful thing under the hood but it's really just a keyword list at the end of the day like like that's just a data structure i, I can send that data structure over the wire i can i can send that to a function i can store that there i can i can serialize that and store it in a database if i really need to having things be be close to a data structure and being expressible within the primitives of your data structures is just it's an extraordinarily powerful thing to be able to do in in programming languages.
2: Yeah. So you mentioned a, a few different programming languages it sounds like you have some familiarity with. So what kinds of are you doing Elixir full time at your work? Like what what are you doing with like computer languages, computer programming?
1: We use Elixir at work. Uh, we're migrating from a Node.js app, um, and I was a Java dev in another life. Uh, but I've always kept a, a, a very strong research eye on languages. So I, um, I, I've learned lists. I've learned Clojure, Scheme, Scala, like, like the gamut of, of, of those. Just because they all they all have something different to teach you, um, and they all have something that you can take back to you to your to your mother language. Even if you don't learn something, sometimes the journey of going somewhere and realizing
2: that you don't want to be there is it's worth (laughs) the journey itself. Yeah, and why you don't want to be there. It's like, oh, now I can put my finger on it. I know why. Exactly. Yep. So you said you're migrating an application from Node to Elixir. How has that been going?
1: It's been going. It was an established company. We we had a product that was in use. And so whenever you have something that's in use, the number of moving pieces that you need to Juggle in order to make make that transition be smooth is higher than you would like. If it were a greenfield application, things would have wound up evolving very differently. But it's it's been very pleasant. We've we've learned a lot about the Elixir ecosystem, the Erlang ecosystem, all of the tooling. It's been extremely. It's been very nice, I guess. It's really the end of the story on that one. We've enjoyed our time in Elixir and there's been some gaps in tooling occasionally, but for the most part, everything that we've needed, uh, we've had, or has been in a like easily enough able to write ourselves or manipulate something that already existed to kind of make it do what we wanted it to do. Um, there's enough high quality tooling in the language to where you can pretty much do everything that you need at this point.
0: All right. Well, is there anything else that we should ask about with the Elixir before we go to PICs? I will take the silence as uh, nothing else. Uh, before we go there, though, do you want to just chime in and let us know where people can find you online? Yeah, uh,
1: you can find me on Twitter. Um, I am at underscore a asummers, A-S-U-M-M-E-R-S. Um, and you can find me on GitHub, on the Elixir Forum, and the Elixir Slack. I am around. I... Welcome people sending me messages, uh, but just send bug reports to the proper
0: place, please. Awesome. All right. Well, let's start with picks. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood, and I've been asked more times than I can count. How do I stay current? There's a lot to this question, and I'm working on a solution, code badges. That's right. You heard me right. Basically, the idea is, is that you come and do a code badge, and that gets you an introduction to a topic. Then you can decide if you want to pursue it further. But while working on the badge, you gain enough proficiency to be able to pick it up again if you need. A lot of technology comes through on the bleeding edge, and not all of it sticks, but the principles do. So doing badges on the technologies that will get you ahead will provide you with experience needed to stay competitive. Plus, it offers social proof that you know something about the topic. The project is on Kickstarter right now. You can support it and get on the launch list at codebadge.org. Eric, do you want to start us with picks? Uh, yeah, I got one pick that I can share. Uh, it's a pretty cool Chrome extension that I found recently. It's uh, You can find it at dailynow.co. And what it does is every time I open a new browser, it loads in card form the most recent uh, relevant uh, news uh, so that uh, I'm not always looking for news. I'm not finding that I'm like off looking for news, but what I do end up doing is um, if I... I open, the, I open a new tab. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. So I, I command click on it and then it'll open in another tab and I can come back to it later. But pretty cool Chrome extension. So that's my share.
2: Awesome. Mark, what are your picks? So I am currently in in, in like my personal projects. I'm working on um, setting up a Kubernetes cluster when deploying Elixir that way. And not just setting up the cluster, but setting up all the monitoring and everything. And uh, so my pick today is um it was a recent announcement from Paul Schoenfelder who is a bitwalker online uh, where he announced distillery 2.0 distillery is a tool used for helping to build releases for deploying elixir applications and related to that he has some really impressive documentation you can tell he has put a lot of time and effort into these docs and and because of that like these docs, I'm like, what are these written in? This is different. This isn't the normal X docs. And this is something called mkdocs.org that he's built these docs out of. And I just thought that was really cool. And so, you know, it's a, the pick is distillery is awesome and his, his, di- his docs and the guides are awesome. And then I was really impressed with mkdocs as a, a way of creating fun and searchable documentation. So that's my picks. Nice. I'm going to jump in with a few picks. So one of the things that I've been uh,
0: working on lately is... Well, I have a few things in the, in the works. Um, I have a book and course on how to find a programming job. And it's kind of focused on finding your dream job because people either find jobs that they really don't like, or they're new and they don't know how to look in the first place. Um, and I've been working on uh, PodWrench, which is uh, an app that will manage uh, podcast production and and things like that. And anyway, I've been trying to figure out the best way to kind of get the word out about this stuff. And I figured out that, or I've been listening to this book, uh, uh, Launch by Jeff Walker. And he has a product launch formula that he released in 2005. uh, Fairly well known out in the marketing world. Um, But yeah, really terrific stuff. So I'm going to pick the book Launch. I listened to it on Audible. and. Yeah, I think I think that's about it. I do. I'll also pick the app. So one thing that I'm finding is I, I really like having the Bluetooth headphones on my phone when I want to listen to podcasts and things. But when I'm working and stuff, um, it's much more comfortable to just put the headphones on that I have these uh, these headphones that I've got. And so when I want to listen to podcasts um, on my phone, I use Downcast, and you can actually use iCloud to sync your settings between a computer and a phone or a phone and an iPad or all of the above right and so i I've, I've been using that feature a lot uh to listen to podcasts on my computer while i'm working or when i'm you know uh doing other things at my desk um i can listen to a podcast and not have the things in my ear or be worried about battery life or things like that so anyway those are my picks um is downcast and launch. Andrew, what are your picks?
1: So I've been doing some side project stuff lately, um, and that's involved me doing a little bit of front-end work. And I am not very good at front-end stuff, as it turns out. Um, That I'm definitely a back-end guy. Um, But one thing that has helped me retain Sanity in that world is being able to express a shared vocabulary between the front end and the back end um, and so doing that using tools like JSON schema is really powerful. And so my tool, my two picks are the back end portion of that. Uh, so in Elixir, you can do validations uh based off of a JSON schema using the library xjson schema. And then on the front end you can produce forms based off of the JSON schema from your back end uh, using a library from Mozilla called React JSON schema form. Um, and so those two together are very nice. Um, and make it so that I can not have to write a whole bunch of things by hand. Um it basically lets you define define templated forms for the different different components that you want to do. and then when you when your backend describes the JSON schema such that it has this boolean field, this radio field, et cetera, et cetera, um, the associated form will be spit out on the front end and it's it's very nice.
2: That's cool. I've not seen that before.
0: Nice. All right, well, let's go ahead and wrap this one up. Thank you for coming, Andrew. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, we will uh, wrap this one up and we will be back next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by CashFly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with CashFly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.